Welcome to Confessions of History Geeks, a Museum of North Idaho podcast. For over 50 years, the museum has collected, preserved, and interpreted the history of North Idaho. Confessions of History Geeks is recorded in the historic J.C. White House, which is currently being remodeled, and is brought to you by a grant from the Idaho Humanities Council. Special thanks goes to James Supp of Coronado Trading Company for assistance with this podcast. The Museum of North Idaho is a nonprofit that appreciates its members, donors, and community for their support. Enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. I am your host, Sarah Jane Ruggles. I am a local public historian and instructor of U.S. History at North Idaho College. For today's episode, I am happy to be joined by my fellow classy history geek, Mrs. Jocelyn Whitfield Babcock. Introduce yourself to the folks, Jocelyn. <laughs> well, thank you for that introduction. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yes, I am Jocelyn Whitfield Babcock, Development and Marketing Director for the Museum of North Idaho. And the format for this dramatic reading podcast is going to differ from our other broadcasts. Sarah Jane and myself are going to dialogue through Nell Shipman's life in North Idaho with her writings peppered throughout. It's the way that made the most sense, and, you know, Nell Shipman had such an intriguing life that we have to dialogue about it. We can't just spout facts about that. So I'm going to be quoting uh, writings as Nell Shipman, and uh, be advised, sometimes she wrote in third person... (laughs) I also want the audience to understand that I am not a historian, so I might forget myself and place an opinion here or there during the discussion. However, Sarah Jane, you are a historian, so uh, you will, you're charged with having to have a more balanced view of the events and keeping me in check, so that, <laughs> that's your job. <laughs> well, what I love about the format that we're doing today is that uh, For those of you who don't know uh, about Nell Shipman or aren't familiar with her story, she's an incredibly complex character in um, Hollywood history, and she has, and because of that, she deserves a complex and interactive uh, platform to discuss her story. So I think this is going to be pretty fun. I hope she'd be proud of it. Um, But... Nell Shipman, for those of you who uh, are not familiar with her, she was a well-known silent movie actress who uh, made her mark on cinema history in the early 20th century. Uh, Her story is remarkable um, and absolutely fascinating, and it has a neat local twist to it, which is why we are excited to bring it to you. Um, But we're going to do our best to enlighten our listeners about the narrative of her life, Uh, There was an article in the Spokesman Review by Susan English in 1987. That's a great year. That was the year I I came into the world. Oh, yeah, good year. She wrote about uh, Nell Shipman becoming a household name as an actress in the 1920s uh, after she starred in a silent film in the Canadian Tundra in 1919. However, Susan went on to write that it was living through three harsh winters on the north shores of remote Priest Lake with a film crew, her lover, and a menagerie of more than 100 animals that made her a legend. 
No kidding. And the Museum of North Idaho has caught Nell Shipman fever while designing and constructing our 2021 featured exhibit, Hollywood of the North, North Idaho and the film industry. So we're talking a century of film history in North Idaho. Our uh, staff historian, Robert Singletary, and our executive director, Britt Thurman, will be delving into her contributions uh, to the film industry through North Idaho through a series of lectures this summer and fall, also exploring uh, the roles of gender in Hollywood. So I didn't want to duplicate their efforts. And since April is National Poetry Month, and Nell Shipman had a few poems, <laughs> mostly uh, you know, written to her uh, romantic interests, uh, I decided that we would delve more into her personal life and really explore why she had to leave Idaho. It doesn't say why she never came back, but it, she definitely had to leave as a result of those relationships. Right. Yeah, she, she reinvented herself a few times uh, with uh, the loves of her life. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, so we're going to, through the museum that they focus on, she's an actress and a screenwriter, a producer, a director, an author, a poet, an animal rights activist and trainer, but we're going to look at Nell as a daughter, a wife, a lover, and a mother. Yeah, she was... Like we said, complex, <laughs> underlined, italic, all, all of the above. And so she was not actually born Nell. She was born uh, Helen Foster. Is it Barham? I always wonder how to pronounce her name. Barham? I think it's Barham. Yeah. Uh, on October 25th, 1892. And uh, she was born in Victoria, British Columbia. And it's actually interesting because her father, I've learned was what they called a remittance man, where he was kind of the black sheep of the family, and so those kids were sent out to the colonies in Canada, and they were sent like a, a monthly remittance from the family. And so he was not exactly known for being financially responsible or sober. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh no. um, so she comes from a pretty interesting background in that sense, and she was actually, when she was born, um, found out she actually passed away yeah, a they, few hours old. They, they thought she was stillborn, yeah. yeah and, and her mom, like, grabbed the baby and was running and then collapsed right. and was holding her and then looks down and her daughter is breathing again. It, it was really powerful to read. Yeah. Uh, it, Nell's perspective, you know, she writes it as she was not there, so it's one of right. those third-person. Right, exactly. I mean, it's just... As a mother, I can't imagine more of a nightmare than, than that, uh, but with a happy ending. So her great-granddaughter describes it as she was a soul that was determined to be here. <laughs> um, she was determined in a lot of ways. But she uh, she actually left school at, I think it was age 13, and she took acting lessons and studied music and drama. And uh, her family actually moved to Seattle uh, around this time. And at 13 years old, she uh, joined a touring vaudeville company, but it was actually a Shakespeare-based company. Yeah. What did she, didn't she write about that? I think, Jocelyn, you have some, like, an excerpt of hers. I do. Uh, see if uh, you enjoy this as much as I did. <laughs> I was tall and skinny, rain-thin, 
By 13, I'd most my growth, and it was all uh, not out. By a miracle, or more probably because of a memory trick, I could look at a page and know its contents by heart. This was a Shakespeare reading, when I pounded my flat chest and cried upon fate to come to these women's breasts and turn my milk to gall. Oh, sure, these other pushy young women had bosoms and pushed them out. But nary a one of them might give Lady Macbeth the deuce-like reading, the crying despair, the full measure of histrionic passion achieved by the scorned young pupil. And that is so her. It, this, <laughs> this very dramatic, uh, even in writing, I mean, if you look at her acting, it's there's silent films, there's silent film acting where obviously you don't have the dialogue, so you have to express yourself in motion and movement. Um, but she was even to the nth degree of this uh, drama. But so she, this was not a glamorous life. And especially at 13, I mean, you had to pay for your own hotels. You had to make your own costumes. And it all came out of your measly pay. So you're... And so her mom would travel quite often with her as her chaperone, uh, and uh, but her mom could only take so much of it. So they, they tried to discourage her a little bit from it, but she was bound and determined. She would bounce from company to company to company where half the time the managers would just take off with the, with the earnings anyway. So it was a really tough uh, life, and I think at a young age she showed, I'm not going anywhere. This is what I want to do. But at 18, Helen was cast in a, um, a traveling production where Ernest Shipman, hence the clue on the name there, uh, was the company manager. And within the year, around age 19, she became Ernie's fourth wife, much to the dismay of her parents. Um, you know, and like she described, she was pretty voluptuous and beautiful. And for the time, that was, I mean, he was, what? How many years he's her senior? He was a lot older than her. Yeah, and and more experienced. Right. Fourth wife should have been a tip off to, well, it was to her parents, obviously. Right. <laughs> and he's in he's in the film and the theater industry, and he was actually known as ten percent Ernie because he would take everybody he worked with. He would take ten percent of their earnings. Somehow he would finagle his way in there. So as a young girl, yeah, she fell head over heels, and she's probably getting coerced into this whirlwind romance, but. During this time, she she changes her name to Nell and becomes Mrs. Shipman. So that's where her name comes from. Yeah. So I I have a just a quick reading about that. I was lucky to have found Ernest Shipman to be eighteen and to land a part like Nathia in the Rex Beach play The Barrier. So Nathia is actually kind of where Nell came from. Mm, okay. So that that particular character, he's. Uh, Ernest Shipman actually nicknamed her Nell. Okay. Based on that that character. So. Oh, okay. And while traveling, you know, this is actually her first uh, ex exposure to our beautiful region. Uh, was while she was traveling, um, Nell actually fell down a hotel staircase in Fargo, North Dakota. And she suffered a bad uh, ankle sprain, and she limped through performances for two weeks uh, until a replacement actress from Chicago arrived in Spokane. So I think the company was in Spokane when this actress came, and this whole time while she's limping through, um, the doctors were just giving her morphine shots the whole time just so she wouldn't feel the pain. And she, <laughs> she ends up, unfortunately, becoming 
addicted, yes. right, to, mm-hmm. to morphine. So once this actress comes to uh, replace her, she has a respite and in a Coeur d'Alene. Let's go. Okay. My brother Maurice brought my pal Lil Mulally from Seattle, and we went to a cabin on the shore of Lake Coeur d'Alene in Idaho, where I was to recover from my sprain. I found myself in my homeland. An 18-foot old town canoe came with the rented cabin, and my sprained ankle did not phase my canoeing ability. The forested mountains of Idaho seemed to cascade down the slopes and carry me to their shining heights, cradle me in the topmost boughs, soothe me with song, drift me to sleep on the reflecting pool, the front of their adoration, our lake. I, I think I want to go there. It's right there. Oh, oh, right Lake Coeur d'Alene is oh, right there. Okay, that sounds nice. Let's go do that. Let's go get it. Her lake's not different than our lake. <laughs> okay, all right. It's just a little bit more crowded. <laughs> well, that is true. She had a nice little private cabin somewhere. Right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, just not the motorboat that we have today. <laughs> Lake Coeur d'Alene. That's true. It would have been a lot quieter. Yeah. Uh, so she and Ernie, once she was done with her respite, she she fell in love with with the Great Northwest, um, and also she fell in love with you know the 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 cold. She really did do well in the cold, um, <laughs> and, but just I mean she did. And, she and did. Well, oh my gosh. She she filmed her her films were done in the Canadian tundra and Alaska, um, the Priest Lake area, which we'll get to, uh, but she. Um, ends up meeting when she gets better she got back to traveling with ernie um but then they also settled a a little bit down the road in south pasadena california um i think they had just like this beautiful victorian home i've seen a picture of it it's gorgeous uh and in 1912 her uh, oldest son barry shipman was born so during this time nell took to writing uh film film scenario scripts um, and articles, and when Barry was a little older, Nell went back to acting. But they had a close relationship, again, complex. All of her relationships were complex, but uh, she and Barry always were pretty tight, I think. So she was an emerging uh, actress under Vitagraph, and it's important to understand during this time in Hollywood that um, the film industry was starting to become consolidated. So when it's interesting at the beginning of after the the movie cameras come into being uh, anybody could make a movie as long as you had the right equipment and people would travel with like a bag of reels um, to these vaudeville houses or wherever they could show it and they'd show movies well uh, during this time in the late 19 teens and the 20s movie studios are starting to consolidate they're starting to um the big studios are starting to buy up the smaller vaudeville houses and start opening up their own screening circuits and that's where movie theaters kind of become known and uh so it's it's really interesting to understand what the film industry it was just becoming an industry at this time uh and evolving and she's dealing with the birth of it but they also don't want to send actors on site. They don't want to send them away from the movie lot. Um, and it always makes me think of, uh, you know, Singing in the Rain, when yeah. they're walking through, and right before he does the make them laugh bit, they're walking through all the movie sets, and one 
is uh, they're fighting on a stagecoach, and then they walk to the next movie set, and they're doing a, a, a powwow, and they go to the next movie set, and it's all in one building because they could control the actors, they could control the scenarios. But Nell didn't want to be that kind of actress. She she wanted to go film on site. She wanted to go be out in the wilderness, and she wanted to be her own actress, and that wasn't going to sit well uh, with these large industries. So she she was an emerging actress under Vitagraph, and she played the leading role in God's Country and the Woman, which was filmed on location in the San Bernardino Mountains at Big Bear, California. Nell played a strong female, which is a recurring theme. And Very much so, yes. Yeah, she always played the heroine, always she would rewrite scripts so the leading female would be the the savior. She was on her way to becoming a Hollywood star, yet in an industry that was dominated by men, and for the reasons that I had already mentioned, she was determined to make her own career decisions, as she referenced in her autobiography, and you could take it from there, Jocelyn. I was summoned to the office of Mr. Goldfish, not yet turned Goldwyn, and offered a seven-year contract. It started at less than Vitagraph, was paying and had built-in options guaranteed to blast one off the lot. But it was for seven years, the legal limit, and promised eventual sardom. Cheekily, I turned down the offer, probably a silly move as a neophyte ever made, but I did not like the way they dressed their contract players. This was in the period of curly blondes with Cupid's bow mouths, and wardrobe's main idea was to bind down a bosom with a swatch of shiny material which met yards of floaty gauze at the waistline and looked like a flowery pen wiper. This long-legged, lanky, outdoors gal who usually loped around the silver screen in fur parkas and muckle-ups simply gagged at such costuming and had the nerve to refuse it. Yeah, this is one of those moves that you go, as as someone who wanted to build a career, um, this was really gutsy because she had the opportunity to be a major star, but she didn't want to sacrifice who she was and and the artist that she knew she was, and she knew that she had so much potential, so much more potential than being a face on screen. So in 1918, uh, after she turns it down, uh, she, Ernie Shipman, and um, the director, uh, James Oliver Kerwood, actually formed their own production company um, to film on location in the north. I believe, I think they filmed in Canada for this one. I'm pretty sure at this one they did. Oh, Um, yeah. Yeah, And back to God's country. Mm -hmm. That is the Canadian one, yeah. Right. And these were... These were her most successful films, all the ones that have God's country in them. There's about three films, I think. Yeah. And uh, so she's always known as the girl from God's country. Uh, And apparently the movie um, had some risque elements to it. (laughs) Yeah. So Nell was supposed to wear this nude colored bathing suit while the villain watched her swim in the pool like a voyeur. I guess the suit was made of wool. I can't even imagine a wool bathing suit. But it was bunching up, and it was wrinkling, and it wasn't looking quite right, even underwater. And so she shed the the suit, and she just went ahead and swam naked. And uh, in her autobiography, she claims to be the first female filmed in the nude. 
and uh, the ad advertisements they capitalized on this by having you know this cartoon character and she's only covered her body's only covered by her long hair while she leans against this bear for protection from right. that bad guy and uh, I do believe actually she is the first American woman to have been mm. captured in the nude nope am I wrong Okay, so tell me, tell me the first naked lady on film. <laughs> yeah, no, oh, non-pornographic. For for the film industry, for the, what do you want to say? The I, I wasn't thinking yeah. of pornography at all. <laughs> well, of course, Lumiere Brothers come up with a camera. That's the first thing they're going to film. Naked lady. <laughs> yeah. So I can't hardly stand wearing a bathing suit by today's standards, let alone a, a wool one. <laughs> so I think I would probably say to heck with it anyway. <laughs> but the funny thing is that in that time when that was so blase and, and risky, um, I think that's the English way to say risky. <laughs> um, you know, what the funny thing was is that it really, they exploited that in the advertisement, Ernie did, yeah. that there's a naked lady in this movie. And it really just kind of passed. You'd think they would be completely ostracized or socially. There, there was like another caricature that didn't come from them, which was oh. like the nude is rude or something like that. So there was a campaign against that mm -hmm. kind of immorality of, of what mm -hmm. was happening there. But they just capitalized on that controversy as well. And yeah, thanks for pointing out bathing suits in the 1920s had pants. You know, yeah, <laughs> exactly. They are not even close to, to what we're thinking about. And a wool one would be so heavy. I, I'm surprised she didn't sink to the bottom. Honestly, that would be like jumping into a, a swimming pool wearing all denim. That would <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh, so uh, the movie, Back to God's Country, was partially filmed at um, Lesser Slave Lake in Alberta. But it sounds like the conditions were extremely harsh. And Ernie didn't actually, he went back to California for uh, right after, was it right after filming or during filming? I think he went back to California to work on promoting the film. And she stayed there uh, when temperatures dipped to, I think, below, 50 below yeah. when they were filming. Yeah, it, it, was, it was bad to quote MacLean's September 1st, 2003 cover story. The village was nothing but a collection of fishermen's shacks on the shore of an ice-bound lake. The cabins had stoves and blankets, but you could chuck a cat through the cracks, and the snow came drifting in. Yeah, and this was actually, um, during this time, the, the leading man, who actually, if you look at Back to God's Country, uh, there's a scene where she's mushing uh, with a dog sled, and there's a man on the sled. Again, she's the savior bringing this man to, to safety. But there's two different, if you look really closely, there's two different faces. The leading man actually caught pneumonia and passed away. He was an actor from Australia, and this was like his first leading role. So he dies during filming, but they brought another leading man just so they could finish filming. But this is also where she meets the second love of her life. Not yet, because she's still married, so they kept it PG. Yes, Ernie um, Shipman might be uh, maybe going back to California wasn't a good idea. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, well, well, we'll cross that bridge here. Uh, but she she starts to form a relationship with the company manager, Bert Van Tyle, but he also 
uh, ends up getting extreme frostbite on one of his legs and developing gangrene. So she nurses him through this situation with his leg, and it's pretty agonizing. And so he, sure. he gets, yeah, he gets the frostbite, but right. So she she nurses uh, Bert Van Tyle through his frostbite, and then she ends up going back to California, and she actually catches Ernie having an affair of his own. Really? So she, yeah. So she divorces him, and she has to cut ties with um, the Kerwood Shipman Productions. And But during this time, so she's going through this agony of dealing with a divorce, which in the 1920s is not a very seemly thing to do. But she also contracts um, the Spanish flu. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is right after, this is right as the war is ending up, and we're dealing with a major pandemic. So how did she... How did she get through that? So the quote that she has kind of, I, I would say, just really breezes over it. And since we talked about, uh, you know, Nell being kind of like that stillborn in the mother's reaction, right? Um, I kind of want to cycle back to uh, Nell gets the flu, but so does her mother, and her mother's living with her. Yeah. And her mom's breathing had been very labored. And Nell describes, the doctors say it's double pneumonia, and her mom actually scales the stairs up to the second level where Nell is at. Wow. And, and it's one of Nell's last memories of her mom, and it's that same moment where I've heard doctors say this before. I've heard doctors say my daughter's dying before. Like, she needed to put eyes on her daughter yeah. and have that assurance that she was still okay and that she was going to make it through. Wow, so her mom was, like, reliving yeah. this near-death experience with her daughter. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, doesn't she go into a coma, doesn't she? The uh, Nell does. Yeah. And then her mother ends up passing away in the room right below her. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they, her mom did pass of the flu, and... Nell, I, I don't know exactly how it happened, but she lost a, a lot of her hair, like almost all of her hair. Yeah, which, as we know, in Back to God's Country was long oh, and so beautiful. Long. Yeah. Uh, I wonder if it's the high fever and just kind of thrashing about. Maybe she just kind of rubbed it off. Right, yeah, that's true. That's true. But, yeah, she she woke up and her hair was gone and... She had to go again. into the yeah. the early bob. I mean, it didn't take it, it long wasn't for the bob uh, to catch yeah, on. Cut it all off. Yeah. It's awful. <laughs> yeah, I could only imagine. She wore a lot of hats. Yeah, no kidding. So after Nell realizes, though, that, that Ernie has had this affair, it was actually publicized uh, quite a bit. Uh, like we said, I mean, it was pretty. I, I think the trial made the front page news. Right. Yeah, May 12th, 1920, Nell Shipman, actress, wins divorce. Ah, uh, yes, testifying that her husband insisted on drawing all her salary <laughs> in addition yeah. to his own. Yeah. Mrs. Helen Foster Shipman, better known as Nell Shipman, motion picture actress, was today given a divorce from George Montague, Ernest Shipman. They separated about a year ago after a married life of eight years. The judge asked the cause of the separation, and Nell replied, He had been drawing my salary and did not allow me any money whatsoever that brought about the quarrel, and he left. She explained that she was supported almost entirely by her brother, although she said her salary at the time was $100 a week. 
Mrs. Shipman's brother was present and testified that he paid his sister's rent and other living expenses. Well, one thing I did want to mention, because uh, her husband was taking her paycheck and she said she was making $100 a week. And I just want to make sure that those who are listening know that in 1920, that's equal to $1,300 a week by today's money. So we're talking a lot of money was being taken from her. Yeah. Yeah. And now actually retained control of her zoo. She had the largest, I think, privately owned zoo in North America. She was absolutely traumatized um, during, I think it was... Back to Dodge Country, was it when uh, they had two dogs who were uh, trained to be in the movie? And in the scenes, um, there, when she was like cradling the dog in the scenes, there was this really sweet dog named Rex, who was the sweet, they trained it to be a very sweet, great dame. And then there was another dog that they trained to be a quote unquote killer dog. Um, and so he was just like foaming at the mouth, eating these grizzle wolves. And the way that they treated him was so traumatic for her. And she had seen animals tortured on movie sets before, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, like a a cougar or something that had been aged to death. Yeah. And and they would pour her body on top of it and feed her. Right. They would use all sorts of torture devices to get animals to do what they wanted to do, wanted them to do on the sets. And Nell thought that this was barbaric. During the filming in Back to Dodge Country, she actually goes up to Trezor in the scene and thinks everybody's like oh she must have these dogs confused oh my gosh she's gonna what is she gonna do and the director said just keep going let her let her go talk to the dog let's see what what happens here and Trezor just like melts in her arms and uh after the scene was over she stood up and they go you do know that's the killer dog right that's Trezor that's not Rex she goes I know and so the director actually walks up to the dog and is like mocking it off, oh, killer dog. And the dog actually leaps and bites onto his throat. And they have to pull the dog off of him. And so Nell adopts this dog because she knows that this is not how you get, there's a better way to work with animals. And so it becomes a huge passion for her. And she gathers all these animals, all kinds of animals. Yes. Like not just animals that are North American natives to North American, all kinds, um, and trains them herself. So after the divorce from Ernie, she retains control of the zoo uh, and her favorite animals, including Trezor the dog and Brownie the bear, which were some of her, what, main characters or big stars? Yeah, they they are definitely well-known, and even people that have written about uh, Lionhead Lodge, because she's not the only one that wrote about her experiences in Free Slave. They, they all mention those uh, two animals by name. Right, right. And uh, so she ends up breaking away and forming her own um, production company called Nell Shipman Productions. And guess who she hires as the director? Bert Van Tile. Shocker. Uh-huh. <laughs> With Bert Van Tile as the director, they filmed three short films and one full-length film in California, which was actually, one of them was a comedy set in the Mojave Desert. She rewrites it, and it's a hysterical movie. But then the movie, The Girl from God's Country, was filmed in the backcountry Sierras. It was a two-day trip on horseback to the nearest road. So, Jocelyn, what was the story that she, uh, that Nell wrote about filming this movie? So, uh, I love this scene. It is so Nell. Yeah. (laughs) 
As an executive in my own company, I admit my shortcomings. Despite the leather coat and briefcase, I knew nothing regarding board meeting procedure. A motion having been made, and because I'd heard such things seconded, the notion, I remember my attorney's look of pure horror. Then, it getting to be midnight, I tired of motions and notions and rose grandly, stalked to the office door, and topped my act. Gentlemen, talk is not putting one foot of film on the picture. Now you'd best kick through or else. Far as I'm concerned, you can all go to hell. So what, what do you think she was feeling in that moment? I mean, she puts it in pretty good words, but... What do you think prompted this response from her? I mean, well, we talk about her as an artist a lot, and I know that some of the scholarly books and thesis that I read when she turns down the offer of a seven-year contract, they were saying that she was afraid of success, and I don't think that's true. I right. think that she was a true artist, and, and this is exactly what is going on, is the business side of things where they're making motions and they're making decisions for her is, mm-hmm. is what's happening. She's answering to a board. She's answering to a whole team, and the, that board is made up of the investors. Right. But it's also Nell Shipman Productions. Exactly. (laughs) How confusing is that? It's almost, uh, you know, I have a degree in nonprofit management. And there's a a lot of times somebody will form a nonprofit and they become the executive director. And then they staff their board and find out the board is in charge of the executive (laughs) director. You know, you will answer to the board, but I formed this organization. Yes, but. (laughs) Yep, exactly. Nonprofits don't run alone. And so that's kind of the same thing. She's got a production company, but she's got a board and it's made up of her investors. And they're looking at the bottom line and they are scrutinizing what is transpiring and it's affecting her art is what she's, I think, what she's seeing. Right. And the girl... Yeah, that that sounded. She's like, stop wasting my time. Mm-hmm. I've been here long enough, and I I don't care for you know you watching the bottom line. I'll watch the artistry. Exactly. And the girl from God's Country doesn't she? She actually admits that it's pretty much uh, reels of car crashes and you know big dramatic action scenes. But it it ended up being thirteen reels long, and so movie uh, show houses would not book a 13 reel movie so they ended up cutting it this board mm-hmm. down to nine reels and it she became livid um she she just described it as almost like butchering her work yes and and like gutting it so she she got mad and and so i'll let you describe her reaction to that all right. The, the, if you thought the last one was good. <laughs> she's, a, she's a spicy meatball. I, then and there, hot under the wolverine collar of my genuine leather coat, banging my briefcase in rage, hide me to a Western Union office and broadcast a paid, full-page ad to every trade paper in the industry. Was I blackballed in the business? I really don't know for certain... I do know I was spanked, that henceforth I heard strange, sharp sounds as if some doors down a long corridor were slammed shut. I packed my toys and moved north. Right. And she, so I can understand why she's upset, but that was a pretty bold move. And she was blackballed. 
Um, oh, yes. So even the, the producers, those people who were serving on her board were going through Hollywood saying, don't work with this woman because she's difficult. Even today. Well, difficult. She took out full page ads that oh, said, yeah. don't book my movie. I mean, that right. what? Well, and, she's, <laughs> and she was saying to book the 13 reeler, but don't book the nine one. That that is not my real artistry. And so but nobody's going to book that long of a movie. So she ends up really... Nobody's going to book drama, period. Right. Yeah. 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 And no one wants to get in the middle of that fight. Yeah. But it's, it's so funny because even today you read about women in Hollywood talk, being described as being difficult. And it's like it's a black spot on their resume. And so she, she felt that. And so it was kind of like, move over, Hollywood. I'm heading north. This is probably a good spot to take a break and next podcast we're going to come back and find out what happens when a strong independent filmmaker comes to Idaho. Thank you for tuning in to Confessions of History Geeks, a Museum of North Idaho podcast where history is brought to life by the curators of the stories and culture of North Idaho. Visit the museum's website at www.museumni.org for articles about our area's history and for ways you can help us keep history alive for our future.